Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Well, Landry, I am simply speechless. I thought I had seen it all. Aliens, predators, ghostbusters, you name it. But recently I've learned that the only good bug is a dead bug. We are discussing none other than Paul Verhoeven's largely misinterpreted by critics, graphically violent sci-fi satire, Starship Troopers. Joining us today is Libertarianism.org's own intellectual history editor and host of the Portraits of Liberty podcast, Paul Meany. Hi. And our Dr. Strangelove superfan, the director of defense policy studies here at the Cato Institute, Eric Gomez. Hello. Yesterday was the first time I had ever seen this movie. And I had what I think is a pretty common reaction to it, uh, which was uh, immediate dislike. <laughs> uh, I thought it was fascistic, jingoistic. Uh, but upon reflecting uh, and preparing for this, I realized thinking about the movie when you know more about it provides more context and sort of gives new meaning to the film. Uh, so what kind of context does Robert Heinlein's 1959 novel that it is based on provide? And how does the film play off of that? So Robert Heinlein is actually one of my favorite authors. Um, I, I, I read, um, I read Starship Troopers a few years ago. I also, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land is probably one of my favorite novels. I think I've read that cover to cover three or four times. And I've read several of his other works. So I really like Robert Heinlein um, as an author. And, you know, the context, I, I was also doing some research on the novel uh, in preparation for this. And, you know, I, I didn't realize until doing that research that he wrote this. Well, what, number one, Robert Heinlein was a very ardent anti-communist. Um, and he also wrote this book in a matter of weeks after the United States paused above ground nuclear testing in the Eisenhower administration, I believe in 1959. So this was kind of a response to that. And a like the book was a, um, a critique of how American society was becoming uh, like too soft and materialistic. Um, and also how, you know, I think that's where some of these kind of fascist tropes come from of, only military service can guarantee citizenship and, you know, a very heavy focus on military power and violence uh, as the as the realm of the state, um, which is kind of strange when you compare it against, say, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which Heinlein wrote um, less than 10 years later, which is like libertarian fantasy on the moon. Uh, <laughs> so I, I always found it interesting that the same guy could write both of those types of novels. Um one, one interesting thing that I'll, you know, the last thing I'll say about the novel is combat really, it, it's not, it doesn't make for a good action movie. Uh, most of the novel is the classroom sort of instruction or, or Rico going through the training process. There's a little bit of combat against the bugs, but it really drives home the point in the book that, you know, it's more about exploring uh, the sort of political and social factors rather than the actual Violence, which of course doesn't make a good action movie. Uh, so I think this this uh, visual representation of, you know, the movie is a good visual representation of that. Um, but it had to go all out on the on the warfare stuff to I think keep people interested. So 
I watched the film so many years ago. I think I watched it when I was about 10 years old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was so cool. Like, it was the best for me when I was younger because I was like, oh my God, there's blood, there's guts, there's swearing, there's nuclear bombs, there's aliens. You know, it's, <laughs> it's all there. So I thought it was like the coolest film ever. And then I didn't think about it too much. I watched it every now and again. I used to tell my friends, I'm like, oh, this movie is so bad, it's good. Then I read the book and, uh, I was not expecting the book to be what the book was. Like, as Eric already said, it's it's mostly just like chatting away in the classroom. Like, it, it's it's really bizarre because it, it always reads like propaganda. And there's people always arguing over whether or not the book is satire. And I always just think like maybe Robert Heinlein was kind of a guy who just liked to play around a lot with ideas. And that's why he could go through such like dramatic, like the moon is a harsh mistress, the professor and it's inspired by robert lefebvre the libertarian activist in the early 20th century and so like i think he was just inspired by things that are happening around him but either way what i'm kind of sad about is that the movie is nothing like the book and uh looking around you can actually see what the directors and the lead writer said uh he said he basically read like the first two chapters of the book and just thought it was really boring and asked the other writer to <laughs> yeah. explain it to him and i was like yeah fair enough if you don't really like that kind of thing but the movie i used to think was not that great. But as I got older and watched it every now and again, I started to appreciate a lot more how intelligent it is. And I didn't know this until reading about it either, is that uh, the director originally did uh, recruitment campaigns for the Dutch Navy. So he actually knew what like directing recruitment videos would be like. And some people didn't really understand that it was a satire. And maybe that's because he got a little too close to reality in some ways. Because people always say propaganda isn't just lies. It's kind of like contextual truths and half-truths and misplaced things. So I thought that was really interesting. On that front, Paul, about, you know, a lot of people not realizing the movie is satirical. I mean, they, they play a lot of the subject matter pretty straight, right? And, and the movie, the movie never kind of intimates that, Hey, I'm, I'm just kidding, right? You know, it, 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 it plays it very seriously. And if you're kind of enmeshed, like I am in the world of like, defense politics and, and military technology and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like you kind of, you can kind of get it pretty quick. Um, but if you're not in that world and most people aren't, uh, then it, it comes across as very like, Oh shoot, they mean this seriously, right? Like this isn't just, you know, this isn't just like, ha ha, look how ridiculous this kind of mindset is. You know, it, it comes across as, as kind of sincere if you aren't sort of cued into that, kind of world. And I think that's part of the reason why so many people come away from this being like, oh, that was just, you know, like weird political propaganda stuff going on. This movie, I think, is is really interesting in particular because like uh, Paul had mentioned, Verhoeven obviously was uh, sort of reacting to and spoofing uh, the book that it was based on in a sort of critique of it. I think he viewed it like a lot of people uh, have have viewed the book. But Verhoeven, specifically, he's coming off of making Robocop and Total Recall. Um, So it's the sort of third part of this, like, satirical, futuristic sci-fi trilogy of things like Turn to Eleven. But he also grew up in the Nazi-occupied Netherlands at the time. So he has the background of sort of being involved in this like propaganda recruitment video uh, environment for the Navy, but also growing up in a 
heavily fascist place. And I think that probably is an explanation for why he read the book the way he did and why he wanted to make the movie something different. And I think if you don't know that, there's very little in the movie that winks at the audience to say this is satire. But as soon as you know that, you're keyed in and you're sort of in on the joke. And I think it would be helpful to draw a line between successful satire and successful satire. (laughs) Whereas one that does the job and is, you know, effective in satirizing something compared to something that satirizes something and the audience is able to digest the satirical message. And that I think is the big problem I had with this movie is it does a very good job of satirizing fascism and ultra conservative militaristic culture, but it does so at the expense of the audience um, who, if you're not in on the joke, you really lose a lot of what makes the commentary really biting and incisive. And I actually think much more interesting than when I watched it. I think thinking about this movie is very interesting. I thought watching it for the first time, I was like, this is an hour too long. Why are they all, are they all in high school? (laughs) They all look like full grown adults. They're supposed to be in Buenos Aires. It looks like they're in Southern California. What is going on? I was just lost. There's a bit of a timing issue too here because the movie comes out in 1997 and that's kind of a weird limbo in terms of like what Americans are thinking about in terms of foreign conflict, right? Because it's before the global war on terror, but it's after the Cold War. The book was a product of the Cold War. So you kind of have like the the bugs as like a communist society, right? But if it's coming out in 97 when, you know, U.S.'s unipo- unipolar moment and biggest, baddest military in the world and, and things are kind of relatively calm and peaceful, then, you know, there's, you know, there's not that like kind of stuff happening in the background of people's lives that they can easily filter this through. Uh, So I think that might also, I have some impact to do with it. Um, But then it's like, if this movie came out, you know, 2002, 2003, maybe it has a different reception because then, you know, war or conflict against a foreign adversary is more in the in the backdrop of everyone's minds when they see it. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. I was going to say on the like topic of satire, one thing I have a problem with is that people always say, "Oh, it's so hard to tell if it's a satire." And I always I get frustrated with that a lot because I feel like the movie plays it very quickly. And uh I think the original book was written to be kind of like a utopia. But whenever someone writes about a utopia, you can always tell what their dystopia is because that's what they exclude. I think there's lots of different kinds of people who portray utopias and some people portray it as, you know, technological advancement gets us up to the stars and we live all day playing video games and eating the best food ever, blah, blah, blah. Or we don't have to do anything with our lives. Other people view utopia as like a Spartan work culture and that we all pull our weight and it's more of a symbol of justice as opposed to prosperity. And so in some parts of the book, yeah, there's lots about technology, but the movie strips all of that away. They're just like guys with machine guns. There's technology, but the bugs kind of equal them. But a big part of the film is how fast it moves. So you're getting this information. A man was caught murdering someone, and then at 6 p.m. his trial has already happened and the execution's on live TV. So that just shows you that the legal system in this whole setup is abysmal. 
has no real concept of that we have today. But you just you gotta go past that so quickly because you're like, oh, back to Save by the Bell meets Jarhead with the cars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In the original, uh, Johnny is supposed to be like the descendants of Filipinos uh, in Buenos Aires. And then they make him like this square jawed white man with blonde hair. And I think there's a little bit of a point to that. They're all cast with a particular purpose. Yeah. So actually, he apparently, uh, uh, upon my research after watching the movie, thinking it was basically another Mars Attacks type movie, and then re- researching more about it, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg and Matt Damon both auditioned, but the director specifically said that he was looking for the prototype of a blonde, white, and arrogant actor <laughs> uh, to portray. Um, I mean, he, he admits to taking... Um, parts of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of Will and other types of propaganda and really trying to put Nazi imagery within the um, within the film. So he had pretty, um, I mean, Wahlberg and Damon are huge actors, um, even at that time. He had a lot of options and chose to evoke certain emotions. I mean, you can't you can't watch this film and not think about how whitewashed it is. Um, and which is why Landry and I were like messaging back and forth. I was like, wait, they're from Buenos Aires. <laughs> I've heard that as well, the whitewash thing. I'm a little confused. I know the Nazi symbols give me always a big laugh because in this film, the guy who uh, gives Rico corporal punishment when he gets the guy shot in the head, he, the guy who whips him is black. And you look at his uniform very closely. He has the double lightning strike of the SS on his shoulder pad. And then he has a cap with a skull on it. And so Starship Troopers is, is the bizarre future in where a black man whips a white man wearing Nazi memorabilia. And it's just this bizarre world. And sometimes I think it's not like whitewashed. It's like this weird, everyone's equal in the future, but we're still fascists. And so like they have the mixed showers and they don't even care. It's kind of like this weird, like, and it reminds me of the Spartans used to, they, women and men used to go around naked. And this weird like difference about it all and how we're all kind of the same as long as we're fighting for the one organism that is the massively overarching state. And they're all about self-sacrifice and stuff. So I feel and like um, I remember the Sky Marshal, one of them, he uh, steps down after the battle at Klendathu and the woman who replaces him, you know, it's a, a black woman, which is, you know, there's never been a black female president in America, but in the fascistic Starship Troopers world, it's really just about merit seemingly or in the ideal form. Yeah, it's. I was gonna say a similar thing to Paul, where you know the the main cast. Yeah, like I, I think Natalie's right in terms of like Rico's sort of novel identity getting whitewashed a bit. But it is like an interesting, you know, like the military is very diverse. Like there, there's that scene where they all like shower together and they are talking about why did you join? And some people are like, oh, I'm just like from a poor farming family, and you know they they wanted something better for me. And some person was like, well, I'm, I just want to get into politics and you need to be a citizen to do that. So one person's like, can I have a child license, please? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You get it through citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to get it through citizenship. So, so you have this like incredibly, it's like racially diverse, gender diverse, like reasons for service diverse. Um, And also like, I, I'm assuming it's a world government because there's all, all that happens in like Buenos Aires, but then they're like, the capital of the Federation is in Geneva, uh, which right. <laughs> is like, wait, like, so is this just a world government now? Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I thought that was like an interesting thing. And I, I think Paul raises some good points there about like, you know, hey, as long as everyone's a good fascist, then we're all on the same team and we got to worry about the bugs, like uniting against, uh, you know, the alien threat, right? Like the, the thing that's out there that isn't human. That's a common trope in a lot of 
like sort of the sci-fi things of like, oh, there's bad stuff beyond the stars. Well, shoot, time to just squash all of our petty little differences because we got to, you know, survive against the, the alien threat, right? Um, so I, I Independence think that, Day, yep. Mars Attacks. I was going to yep. say that um, <laughs> Starship is almost like a completed fascist society in which they've won, they've won the war, they've overcome the struggle, and now they've realized the reality of fascism. And so fascists were always striving for a particular thing and they're always striving through force to get there. And it's always the extermination of the other, you know, whatever group you want to make that. So in the Starship Troopers world, it was like delinquents and layabouts and you know, social scientists, people of probably a liberal ideas persuasion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I saw yeah. the, the social scientist thing made me really cackle. Um, yeah. That's win. not good for They win, like they me. take over the world. And then what happens? Well, they have to find a new enemy. I, went, I love the part of the movie. Again, like people don't understand the satire because they don't, they don't pay attention to those two second little clips. They show the map of the universe and where Earth is and where the bugs are. And the distance is just like astonishingly massive. There's like galaxies <laughs> yeah. view, and it's like, how is, yeah. how is this even a relevant enemy? And it's just like, that's how desperate fascism is for an enemy. It always has to have some sort of other, whether it's like millions of light years away, just to justify cohesion. It's clear on the other side of the Milky Way. Like it kind of reminds me of like the, the, there's like a great, it's a few years old now, but there's like a map of like, of course, Iran wants war. Look how close they put their country to our military bases. And it shows like <laughs> the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, and the Middle East, like surrounding Iran. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah. no. Or, or, or there was another one like that when, uh, there was an incident a few years ago where like a Russian, uh, airplane approached like a U.S. Navy warship in the Black Sea. And, and there was all these reports of like, oh, like two, you know, Russian airplane gets too close, like unsafe. And then someone drew a map. It's like, here's where the United States is. Here's where Russia is. Here's where the warship was like next to Russia. <laughs> like who was too close to whom? <laughs> and it, it kind of, you know, when, when I saw that, that sequence uh, that Paul referenced, you know, that, that jumped into my head. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, why, why do you need to, you know, there's a whole galaxy between you two, right? You'd think that would be enough space where both could like not have to, attack each other but yet it's not i've always wondered in the film if like buenos aires is actually destroyed by the bugs because in the first battle at clandathu the bugs are like made out to be mindless and then when they land when they first see the warrior bugs they're like the arachnids the arachnids like just scream at them for a while and don't actually attack them whether or not that that's just like movies showing off how cool the bugs look or it's not genuine confusion of the bugs not understanding why the humans are there i think is really interesting because it's really vague like they don't even show you they show you like them dodging a meteor but could the bugs fire meteors that far doesn't make that much sense all the time right and and it doesn't make any sense because there's no like bug incursion as far yeah. as we can see it's just that the infantry lands on their planet and then they get attacked in what appears to be a sort of defensive maneuver the the only type of real menace we see from the bugs that they're you know enacting is when they suck the brains out of xander oh, in the gosh. cave at the very end <laughs> and i i was waiting for when they like 
hold it up in front of the giant bug face. That's just so gross. Um, I was waiting for the bugs to be like peaceful and to be like, and now we will give you a place to live and that they weren't killing any of the troops because they were like giving them a peaceful place to live or like something like that. I was just waiting for that to be the twist, but that wouldn't be satirical. That would be like an earnest ending where everyone would be like, and now you see the error of your ways uh, and you realize that the bugs were actually just like us all along. And they were like, nope, the bugs have to be evil. They have to eat your brains. They have to suck them out with a weird tentacle needle thing. So I was going to say on the topic of psychics, I think it's a big part of the film that not many people really pick up on, in my opinion. Maybe because it's not extremely blatant to begin with i've watched this movie so many times since i was 10 i'm <laughs> such a loser but one of the big things i found amazing was at the beginning of the film they're showing off an autopsy in the classroom and have this random little bug and the teacher talks about how this bug is you know one of the characters is like why do we even bother doing this with this stupid bug and she's like stupid bug like this small thing has no sense of consciousness no sense of self it doesn't feel pain it just follows orders and you're like oh god that's a terrible life to live but then you find out human society and bug society are the same. Carl has psychic abilities that he develops later on to actually give Rico ideas of where the brain bug is. So both human society and bug society have like a psychic cast at the top that tells everyone else what to do. And the only difference between humans and the bugs is, is that the bugs on the lower end, the warriors and the workers are like fearless and have no sense of self. But humans just aspire to be like that in the Starship Troopers world. But you could make the argument, I think, that I think makes your point even more potent, which is that the fascism inherent in the society is so prevalent and so entrenched that the people, most of the people who follow through and are part of the infantry that end up being the counterparts to the like bug warrior soldiers actually don't have that sense of fear. Um, They go on and they land on the planet and they're just like, come on, let's get some. And they just go, go, go. And they shoot. And I mean, maybe if they get their leg bitten off, then they'll have a sense of fear. But most of the people still end up being a, a fearless, you know, killing machine that they're being told to be. So I think if anything, it just makes it even more potent that they really are the same. I'm curious about how did humanity spread across the stars? Because you see when, when like Rico is handing in his paperwork, right. Or when he's going to class, his instructors have those like horrible injuries. Like one guy's missing like two legs and one arm. One guy's missing his arm. Uh, His science professor, she's like blinded. And where did they get those injuries? Presumably they did (laughs) not get, presumably they didn't get them fighting other people on earth because there's other human settlements in the stars. So is this like the first time that the humans are encountering the bugs in a war? Have we just like exterminated other alien species to get where we are? Um, It kind of raised some, some questions that the movie never explicitly answers about like the nature of the society and the nature of like, you know, does humanity always need, like we talked about earlier, in a fascist society, you always need that other to be striving to eliminate, right? And have there been other bugs, maybe not actual bug species, but other like intelligent life in the universe that humanity has like just exterminated because they were the arachnids of the earlier generation? Um, 
and and the movie never answers it, but you know, it, it was just something I thought of after watching the movie of like, huh, like how many times has this, I wonder how many times this has happened in this universe. One of the great ironies of the film is at one point, Johnny, he's uh, talking to the teacher, John Rachek or whatever. I think it's it sounds like a Polish name. He's talking to him and uh, basically he's saying, I don't know if I should join the military or not. My parents are against it, but I want to become a citizen. And he turns to him and like really earnestly and warmly says like, Johnny, figuring things out for ourselves when the only freedoms we truly have. And it's so funny because then the film is like, now watch some propaganda clips. And you start to realize right. that's the whole warning. <laughs> this is the only freedom you really have and you don't have it. Kind of jumping back to what Eric said too, I was just thinking that like the film is very cyclical in the sense that it like starts off with propaganda and ends with propaganda and like essentially just admits that like all the people that are part of the fighting force are just pawns that they're using to recruit more people and recruit more people into violence for this ever persistent enemy and i was just thinking like that that design of the film and in that way also makes you think like how many more how many more people have been like bought into this this propaganda machine in a sense and i was kind of wondering how you think propaganda plays a role in this society and if you think that like this society buys it because you know how like it, it's a satire but it seems that like ev- obviously there's not enough winks and nudges from the characters to suggest that it's a satire but it's almost like they were like, oh, yeah, this propaganda is good. Like, this is helping us gain more, whether it be troops or supporters or more citizens versus um, citizens versus civilians. How, how, what role do you think propaganda plays? I, I think it's playing a pretty central one. If, you know, presumably there isn't any other source of information, right? Like, this society doesn't strike me as the type of one that has, you know, MSNBC on one channel and Fox News on the next. Um, so, so a lot of the information you're getting is is from you know just the state uh, for, for for more or less. And yeah, like it, it's I think a lot of it. You're right. Um, and the cycl- the sort of nature of uh, you know early on in the film, Johnny Rico has those moments in class where he says you know. The, his instructor asks, do you believe in this distinction between citizen and civilian that we've established in the society? And he says he doesn't know. But by the end of it, he just becomes his teacher. Like he's saying the same lines and the same things that his uh, teacher, who later becomes his lieutenant, uh, says to him. And it's sort of like any, you know, any kind of doubts are gone, right? He has become, he has become what he... Uh, you know, in a matter of only, what, a year or two, maybe, uh, has turned into, like, the exact same thing of, of the person he replaced. And so, yeah, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty grim ending from that perspective of, like, oh, this is just going to keep going. It's also interesting, after Rico's first battle, he's he put in this, like, big vat of luminous green goop, and there's robots, like, dabbing away at his room with, like, little cotton swabs. Looks pretty cool. But then he's technically killed in action, and it's, like, some sort of symbolic rebirth. Like, after his first battle, he's, like, a new man. And there is a cyclical element to the film, because the beginning of the film is that little joke where the child comes out and says, I'm doing my part, and everyone laughs. And then later in the film, just a little later, you see them handing out guns or bullets to kids at school, and then a little later on, you see Rico's walking 
through uh, his military training place where he's doing basic and he sees someone who looks kind of young walk by as a new recruit. And then towards the end of the film, uh, on the last mission, there's a batch of new recruits and they're like 15, 16. And like, they make jokes about it. And like, that's the whole point. It's like, it's all about the next generation. There's always the new one to come in. And the end of the film, the final propaganda clip is them saying, they're the new generation. Whoa. And so it is just this dull again and again and again and indoctrination and indoctrination. Sometimes I feel people can be very um, dismissive of what is and isn't propaganda. Because in places like America, where the Defense Department pours massive money into films and could be considered one of the biggest production companies and helps make massive films as long as they align with the military's ideals. There's been multiple films that have been used as like recruitment movies almost. As people don't really want to believe that we're being propagandized, but we're in some ways we're similar to the people in Star Troopers with how we view the military. And the whole point of the film is that it shows that war makes fascists of us all. A lot of war movies make you kind of have to go into this really binary mindset to justify all the mega violence you're watching. Well, I... I, it's interesting that you bring up that point, Paul, because I was reading a few articles about about this movie that came out like in 2018. So they're very, more recent than the movie. And I pulled a really interesting quote and it said, all that's left to win is the chance to fight more and to fight off the realization that the fighting itself has become the point. So essentially that like violence is what they're after and like perpetuating violence. And we've talked about this a few times on the show now about these movies that like the point of the movie is violence and the fact that we're watching it is like us buying into this fact that we think this like hyper violent society is something that is entertaining to us, which is like kind of messed up in a way. (laughs) Um, Like we talked about it with the purge and, uh, and other films, but it's also striking to me because when this film came out in 97 and we've mentioned the shower scene, which I imagine was pretty controversial at the time this movie came out. I imagine that shower scene was more controversial than the violence in the rest of the film, which is just another statement on American society about like our acceptance for violence, especially like in, in big Hollywood blockbusters particularly one part about the film that i kind of just the massive amounts of violence i thought were crazy and i feel like the more violence there's in the film the more they have to make out people to be extremely evil to justify you enjoying all of this but with the bugs since they're so alien it's not the same like it's more you're watching people get destroyed like the bugs they just fire green gloop you know pods and slime the usual alien stuff but the human, it's actually the humans that are getting the massively gruesome and terrible deaths. And the bugs don't scream when they die. They make like a droney sound, but they don't make a proper scream. But you know people are dying. And you can almost see it that people are getting just torn to shreds because of the system they live in and how it needs to breed conflict to justify its cohesion. And I think it's just, a, I think it's a pretty cool statement in a way. Normally people say violence in films can be just gratuitous, but I was like, hey, I'll give Starship as a pass. And plus that's why I loved it as a child, so... This is like a, a departure from like the serious stuff, but why doesn't anyone have like standoff weapons in the future? It's so weird. <laughs> like, like watching, you know, I, I was watching this and the, the tactics of quote unquote tactics of the mobile infantry are just stand in the open, take no cover and just fire like hundreds and hundreds of rifle rounds into like one bug to kill it. It's like, well, no wonder you need so many people. You guys, like, for a fascist society, you sure do suck at war. Um, they always you know, lose. Wa- and they, <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it, it's so, and it's like, I see it in, like, Star Wars, right? Where Star Wars is basically just, like, 18th 
or 19th century like naval battles but in space it's like have any of you heard of a missile <laughs> like a thing you can fire from far away that can strike with precision um and and you know well, I, that I think wouldn't that, be as cool no it wouldn't be it's much cooler I, to have bug guts on you <laughs> yeah i i guess i mean it's like less visually appealing but it's like man how did you like or, or like the 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 fleet tactics of you know, oh, every time a, a ship gets hit in space, they're going to crash into each other. Like, well, space out. You have space. <laughs> like, you're in space. You don't have to be, like, a 100 yards away from each other when you're dropping off your troops. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Th- that, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff just, just makes me, like, wonder what the heck's going on. Um, but, you know, and, and that's one thing where I think in the, you know, in the books, the book Starship Troopers gave rise to power armor right? Like that was the first mention in novels of power armor. And like, and these guys don't have like their mobile infantry, they don't have power armor, right? It's like, what's mobile about them? They just walk everywhere. So um, as a Starships <laughs> super fan, I have watched the later films. There's two and three. And then there is the CGI, the CGI ones. There's two of them. And the CGI ones are way different because they all have massive power armor and they have like they have guns that go around backwards and they can run away and fire at the same time. They all have nuclear missiles and it's completely different. Like it, they just kill all the bugs. It's ridiculous. Like five of them can kill thousands. It's nothing like the movie at all. But I think that's part of it is that the movie is about it's about that like warlike sacrifice and they talk about it in the film and boot camp, one of the characters says like, why can't we just drop nukes on them? And then he put, makes him put his hand on the wall and he throws the knife in it, makes the glib little remark. You can't press a button if you disable his hand. But the whole point is that like, that's not very manly. You got to produce a manly society. Even though we have women in the military, we all want to be manly. And that's like the weird, it's egalitarian, but in a way that they crush all gender and racial norms. So everyone can fit in with their one vision of how the world ought to be. And we'll tolerate people who disagree with us as citizens or civilians, but they can't partake in society. And one thing I think really interesting is that Paul Verhoeven also made the movie Robocop. And Robocop's entirely different because Robocop is kind of like a dystopia made by Reaganite regular deregulation and like privatizing the police and stuff. But Starshoopers is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And it shows that kind of range that both Heinlein had with Starshoopers and The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Vaderhoven with Robocop being the neoliberal hellhole and Starshoopers being like the hyperfascistic other hellhole. Can someone explain to me how old they're supposed to be at the beginning of this movie? <laughs> because because they're at some sort of academy, but it's not the military academy. It So is it like a... Is it like a college and then there's like a professional school? I thought it was high school. Or are they supposed to be like – I thought – yeah, because – well, and also – so it's like space high school, but they're not in space. Um, and it's in Buenos Aires, but they treat it like it's Southern California or something. And they there is a football game that happens. There is a very strange arena football <laughs> scene uh, where they're all wearing like half the, the amount of armor. It's, it's like arena football in that it's on a smaller scale, but the points are all off. There's apparently not gravity in this the place where they're playing because they're all doing flips and no great. one is playing defense. And then and but the teams that are playing each other, one is Xander's team and one is Johnny Rico's team. But we then learn Xander is going to the military academy. But then when Brooke Shields gets there, he's already been there. He's like the assistant instructor. So it seems like he's like older or is he is he part of like 
a private school compared to like a or more a more esteemed school and then there's like a prom that they go oh, to great. where like what is i don't understand anything and this is all in the first like 20 this is minutes what it's like living in america no not you this is what it's like living in america when no one can tell you what age you are in every particular grade and i don't know what prom is or what homecoming is or cheerleading <laughs> or I don't know the highs and lows of american football this is what it's like being a foreigner you don't get what anyone's talking about or how old anyone's supposed to be you're like oh i'm in the eighth grade i'm like what does that mean and now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Eric and Paul, what else have you been enjoying besides Starship Troopers? I've got a, a book and a show. On the show front, uh, my wife and I are watching The Wire. And it's not the first time it's not the first time I've seen it, it's the first time she's seen it. And it's so funny because she always says, like, there are no protagonists in this sh- show. Everyone is awful except maybe Omar and uh, maybe like Detective Freeman. It's like those are the only people you root for because everyone else is just so so much of a hot mess um, in like their personal lives. So we're, we're on s- season two of that. We're near the end of season two uh, with the Stevedores um, and, and moving through that one pretty quick. On the book front, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi um, I've gotten I've gotten very into my local library uh, in in pandemic, and uh, I'm reading a lot of books by uh, John Scalzi. He's a uh, sci-fi author. Um, he there's a couple series that he wrote that I'm reading right now. One is called Old Man's War, which is kind of like Starship Troopers in in that uh, humanity is like colonizing other planets. But the deal with the deal with Old Man's War is when you turn like a certain age on the Earth, you can sign up to like go out into the colonies and basically never come back to earth. And they put your conscious, they like transfer your consciousness into like a bioengineered, like young person's body for humanity to like fight against aliens and and try to colonize planets. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the kind of fascist or political stuff in it as much. Uh, I think it's much more about like, you know, what does consciousness mean? What does a sense of self mean? Uh, if you can just like plug and play uh, consciousness into different bodies. Um, but it's it's a good series. I've read the first two books of that. And then I'm reading the last book of his interdependency uh, trilogy, which is about like, you know, basically like what if an ecological disaster happened, like a slow motion ecological disaster was happening in space. I'm reading it as very much like, you know, global warming uh, where in, in the book, um, the way that, Humanity exists in a bunch of different star systems, but none of their systems can like survive on their own. They're all interdependent on each other. And the way that they get around is this like phenomenon called the flow, which allows for like quick travel in between dispersed star systems. And what happens in the book is like the flow is collapsing, right? Like this thing, like this, it's not like physical, but like this thing that we use to make this whole system work is slowly going away and what the hell are we going to do about it? Um, so it's a very good book. I, I would recommend, you know, John Scalzi as an author very highly uh, for like new, uh, fresh sci-fi. So I don't read an awful lot of books that aren't political philosophy and history because I'm a massive loser, but I have been watching two really cool things. 
So the first one is a movie called uh, The Platform. It's a Spanish film. I think it came out last year, or at least that's when I watched it. And it was my favorite films of the year. And the basic gist is it's this future dystopian society that's left quite up to your own interpretation. You, you're just called the administration. You never see it. You never see it outside of the platforms. It's this weird rehabilitative center where you go in, you're assigned a random roommate on a random floor, and then at the top of the entire structure are people who make this massive table of food, like lobster and cake and pasta and everything. It's like the entire cheesecake factory menu is right there. And then it goes down, and everyone has a minute to eat, and if they keep any food on the floor, eventually they'll be like heated or frozen to death. And it's about people at the very bottom. You're assigned the floors randomly as months go by. Like every month you're assigned a different floor. But if you're at the very bottom floors, there's no food and everyone starts eating each other. And the whole movie is about people trying to survive in this situation. Yes, it's very odd. And it's very hard to get people to watch it. I tried to get my dad to watch with me and he's like, everyone's going to eat each other and it's all in Spanish. I don't want to. But he actually watched it and liked it. That's a really cool movie, which is all about spontaneous solidarity is the theme. And it's about them trying to send a message. But I think it's really good. But the other thing I've been watching is a show called Love, Death, and Robots, which I think is a Netflix original. And it's an anthology series. It's like, I think there's a season about Netflix. There's two seasons now. It's 19 episodes. They're all different themes. But one of the ones I watched was called, uh, oh my God, I think it was like Secret Invader or something or Secret Invasion. It was about um, the US Army in Afghanistan, but two members of the army are werewolves and in this future there are just people who are werewolves and they are part of the army and it's about the discrimination they face for being what they are and the war they fight in but also knowing it, like they're fighting for a nation that they're not represented in at all and people hate them and call them dogs and whatnot i think it's a really really weird story and it, it, it really goes on about the army in a very interesting way but yeah it's rare for me to have two things, let alone one. So I'm proud of myself. <laughs> On uh, my front, I just started reading The Silent Patient. Uh, it's a it's another fiction book that is about a woman who uh, murders her husband and then for, doesn't talk. Um, at all during her trial they put her in a mental health institution because of her uh, of her history before uh she murdered her husband and she still hasn't talked yet and i'm about 100 pages into the book and it's like they're trying to find different ways to try and get her to to speak again and it's, it's very interesting and then i recently started the leftovers on hbo it's not as good as the probably 30 people that recommended it to me <laughs> said it was. Um, but I'm going to try, try and get through it. I also want to start The Undoing, um, which has been buzzing lately on Twitter, another HBO show. Um, but other than that, I've just been been hanging out at home. And, oh, the L.org team started a Sherlock Holmes uh, mystery, which we hope to finish soon. Um we spent a, a solid amount of time uh, running around London finding clues for our uh, murder mystery, but I, I won't give it away since we don't know what happened yet. I'm living on the edge of my seat. 
One show that I've been really, really enjoying and rewatching has been Peaky Blinders, which you can watch on Netflix. It is a, a British gangster series set in Birmingham, uh, starring Killian Murphy and a lot of other people that you might recognize. But it's like very gritty and stylized. So they'll be walking around like doing their British gangster things um, and like shooting things up with Tommy guns and. Uh, but then they'll be like playing Arctic Monkeys and PJ Harvey and Nick Cave uh, in the background while it's happening. So there's this like gritty modern soundtrack, which is one of my favorite things that shows do now is to put modern music on uh, like period pieces. They do it in Lovecraft Country sometimes uh, and uh, it's great. The later few seasons get a little crazy, but the first few seasons I think are very, very good. I have also been uh, playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3, which I got early access for. Uh, so I've been, uh, you know, trying to uh, cleanse myself of the mind flare parasite that was put into my character's brain before I turn into an illithid. Uh So been wandering around the Forgotten Realms trying to, uh, you know, save myself fight off monsters, adventure, et cetera, et cetera. It's great. It's early access. So, you know, there's glitches and bugs and things like that, but I still think it's a ton of fun and it's a great way to get a sort of Dungeons and Dragons experience while being at home and not having a lot of people that you can play with at the same table, um, even if you can play over video chat like I do pretty regularly. So check out Peaky Blinders and Baldur's Gate 3. Thanks for listening. If you want to join Paul in schooling us in what we missed on our first viewing of Starship Troopers, you can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod on Twitter. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.Libertarianism.org.